Hello and welcome to Minta Dialogue, episode number 199. Today is Sunday the 12th of June 2016, and this interview is with Mark Wall, Managing Director Worldwide of Newcast Zinefilter Media, part of the Publicist Group. Newcast is a specialist agency for branded content and engagement, developing and executing non-traditional communication projects for a host of major clients. In this conversation with Mark, We discuss the challenges of defining and implementing a content strategy, how to make exceptional content for a brand, what are the pitfalls, how does one evaluate success, and how best to distribute content so that it is viewed by the right people. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick and enjoy the show. So Mark Wall, we met uh, just recently in Paris. Tell us who you are, what you do, and what is your mindset? Hi Minter, yeah, it's good to meet you in Paris. Um, so I run Newcast, which is a brand content agency that's part of a larger agency network called Zenith Optimedia, part of the Publicis Group. Uh, and we help brands basically navigate their way through what is quite a complex content landscape to allow them, hopefully, to win against other brands. So what do we do there? We basically try and help them decide uh, how to play in content, where to play, and what's the best way in which they can develop content that's valuable for consumers, or what we'd call, prefer to call audiences. Right, so, so we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. What about your mindset? So my mindset, I suppose, is one of being open, curious, uh, and creative, I'd say. You, you need all three of those things, hopefully, to offer clients really useful advice. All right, so digging in on that thought... Typically, in so in publicities, you guys talk about media. So translating that for those who don't understand it, that's the, the, the side of more or less planning and buying. You are, are creative, and or you have a creative spirit. In the planning and buying, that's not exactly the type of characteristic that I would look for. So explain how you got to where you are with your creative side. I suppose, ultimately, it comes from a combination, of course, of effectiveness, in advertising was driven by having a great message that was well delivered as well as well articulated. So that that message being well articulated, thought through on the basis of a good strategy has been the basis of great advertising for a very long time. Getting it to the right audience at the right time and the right place and hopefully the right price is the media side. So you can see how those two things are closely linked. When you assess effectiveness, you might have done all the latter very well, the targeting, the placement, the negotiation. But if the idea or the articulation of the message is poor or ineffective or mm. miscued, then it won't be effective advertising. And likewise, the other way around. So you can have a great idea that's badly distributed and not seen by anyone. Isn't it at a certain level, because I mean, let's say in my past we'd have these large, large conversations about responsibility. And if you're on the buying side, the planning and buying, and you're, you're given a creative that just isn't really up to snuff, of course, it doesn't matter how well you buy, it's sort of the, their fault. So finger pointing on the other side. 
can happen. Whereas you now have kind of, you're, you are responsible on both sides. You have the, the creative and the planning side. That's correct. And in a, I want to be clear, though, in a certain limited or demarcated set of spaces. Um, so when we talk about content marketing, we're not talking about advertising. So yes, you're right when it comes to the agency model around advertising, you do have those two sides continually working with each other, hopefully in partnership, to suggest to each other better ways of uh, producing a, a single result for a client. When it comes to content marketing, because we are able to look at both the creative side, the creative development side, and its execution, as well as the distribution, mm-hmm. hopefully you can produce something that's quite specially integrated from the beginning, mm-hmm. both in terms of the insight that feeds the idea, as well as the insight that's feeding the distribution strategy and I know a few people have said that it, it, as time goes on, the fragmentation in our industry, the split between creative and media, has not been a healthy thing. I do believe it's been a, a necessary thing, actually. Uh, like any good specialization in a capitalist economy, you, good specialization produces great individual work. The trick is integration. So, yeah, back to your point, yes, in, in a nutshell, we, do, we have a responsibility now when we produce content to make sure that it's outstanding work as well as well distributed. All right, so how about giving us your definition of what is content per se? I think content is distinguished from advertising by it being far more flexible in both in duration and, I suppose, space. So whether it's time or space... It's much more flexible. Uh, You can produce a piece of digital content, of course, that runs for a very long time, um, whether that's audio or video or text. So um, that's the first and foremost, the defining feature is the form is very different. It's not constrained by duration or space. That creates a different onus on the message and how the story is told. So it's much more akin to editorial, of course, to journalism in in the written word, or in TV, it's much more akin to a TV program, long-form storytelling, whether that's documentaries, whether it's scripted or unscripted, basically. So it's those kind of creative sensibilities, those editorial sensibilities and skills that are needed in branded content. And what we do is we use specialists to do that, rather than the other distinction, I suppose, between ourselves and an advertising agency is we wouldn't say that we have all those creators in-house. That's very important. Uh, These days, I think anybody who claims they can create every single format or asset in-house is probably not telling the truth or certainly over-claiming. There are so many platforms and formats now to choose from that you really ought to access the best possible talent to tell your story on that platform. Well, presumably, you're in the creation of Newcast, you've had to completely rethink your talent, what you're looking for, and sort of, of course, the Zenith Media type of talent. This is a very different thing. That, that's correct. I mean, it's a very different skill set. So we wouldn't switch somebody from a, a buying discipline or role into uh, an executive producer role. Naturally, we'd ideally, for instance, when it comes to media partnerships, so if we were to work with uh, uh, what we might call a shoulder content production, so around a TV show where we're producing shoulder or um, off-air content, which is not produced with the intention of being broadcast directly to to consumers 
as a piece of editorial, but as a brand-funded piece of editorial, which is carrying brand messages, that shoulder content ideally is produced, of course, by somebody who knows that world. They know about the, the cadence of messaging, they know how to slot into the existing production well, and they're used to the approval timings, the costs that are involved in that, and so on. Uh, and that means that we do recruit from TV production companies, we can recruit bloggers, people from PR, former journalists, editors, uh, as that kind of skill set as distinct from media planning and buying. And does that make it complicated for you internally? I mean, you know, like when you think about L'Oreal, which is where I worked, when we're trying to include these sort of bloggers and coders in a more corporate environment, it's awfully complicated for these large companies. So how about you guys? Yeah, I think for any large corporation, they're having to get to grips with a very different world now, one where the brand being placed front and centre, which they've been used to in a controlled advertising environment with controlled advertising junctions and spaces, it's very clear that the, the brand should do that. And, but these days, of course, mm. if you try and to do influencer marketing effectively, you need the influencer themselves to put their own voice and spin on, on what the brand's value could ever be for their audience. Has the brand even got any permission to be associated with this content or talking about this territory or topic? That's very important. It requires, therefore, I think, uh, more respect to be paid perhaps to the uh, authenticity of the word. It's an overused word, but it's true, Mm -hmm. the authenticity of the messaging that's that's being distributed. In the realm of um, overused expressions, one one hears, Mark, uh, you as I hear, content is king. So for you, is that true or is content queen? Um, I would say, perhaps, wouldn't I, that content is king. But by which I mean, the if, particularly when it comes to a brand, um, the content itself is your opportunity to truly engage with a consumer or an audience in a way that advertising perhaps can't do so. So uh, great advertising obviously does engage and it inspires and it's consumed but there are many many surveys now that show the uh, the extent to which people believe that advertising is better than the TV shows they appear in has diminished. Uh, there's an seems to be a trend amongst consumers to believe that advertising isn't quite as good as it used to be and it's not as culturally uh, relevant or popular. Basically there is now an opportunity through content for you to re-establish that link with the consumer, with an audience, if you produce something really valuable, something that really genuinely ed- entertains or educates or offers some utility. And it's that latter point about utility, I think, that distinguishes content from advertising, mm-hmm. digitally particularly, because it's not one way. We can have an app or a tool or some kind of personalization device. We can offer some utility, and interestingly, not just on a campaign basis, on an always on or certainly, if not always on, a more regular basis. When consumers or audiences want to interact with you and want to find you and discover something about you, if you have something that's engaging and useful, then great. You're more likely to win a greater share of their, uh, their wallet and, and their preference. All right, so Mark, let's say you're, you're facing a client and you're proposing to them a content strategy. How do you go about creating a great content strategy? What are the... What are the types of, of things or the, maybe the challenges you face in, in getting brands to think about content, and which is basically a different kind of paradigm than what they're used to doing in the past? I think the, the three key elements to a, a good content strategy. First off, I'd say 
use data and there's huge amounts of data available to you now to find out what your target audience is interested in. It sounds basic, but which topics of interest, which content territories are they really genuinely interested in? And we can find that out from a number of research sources very, very easily and discreetly. We do it by individual country. And those sources, for example, include the volume of search that they uh, display themselves, that they self-declare through their search behavior. Uh, through social listening, we can really get an understanding of topics of interest and their sentiment as well, positive or negative, towards that topic, not just towards a brand. Um, and also we can actually look at what your competitive set, uh, whether that's a brand or other editorial outlets, are producing and how successful they're being, how how well their, en- their content, their editorial is performing. So there's a number of insights first off. So data is the first thing to f- establish where you should play. Uh, so the richest territories basically for your target audience. Mm-hmm. The second key thing is what is my brand story? What obviously generically, what is my brand proposition? What's my overall big long story? And does that overlap with the first thing, with the consumer interest? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it might not at all. And if it doesn't, then you're going to have to engineer that link. You're going to have to really think carefully about investing in how you engineer that link. And then thirdly, I think the key element, final element on a content strategy is behaving natively. So adapting the content so it reflects the forms and features, the strengths of the individual platform, whether that's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp, these days, of course, Snapchat, very much in vogue. You have to behave according to the, the conventions and codes of editorial or storytelling, whether that's peer-to-peer or it's from bigger media companies on those platforms, to understand what it is that the audience likes about that platform and its features. Mm-hmm. And you'd be a fool not to exploit those, those, those features to their full. Do you feel, Mark, that... Today, with things like Snapchat, 150 million daily users and Facebook's uh, obvious proliferation, that it's no longer just the platform's typical native thinking, but that if you're looking through a, you're looking for a specific target group, you actually have to also adapt within that world on Facebook to a different style of native. And you know what I mean? I suppose there's like native for Facebook, but there might be for an 18 to 25-year-old group a different type of native than 40 to 50. Absolutely right. Targeting is still really important. Just because you've got an individual platform like Facebook or Instagram, there are different rules. You're absolutely right. And uh, I think Snapchat's perhaps more easy to generalize about because it's slightly narrow in its audience profile. But even there, we're seeing 30-plus usage increasing significantly as its yeah. audience numbers grow. And, and, Snapchat's, and, and Snapchat's adding new functionalities, so yeah. it's making more richer experience. Exactly, and, and that's what they intend to do. I'm sure it's part of their business plan that they need to widen out to other target audiences, not just for advertising, but so that they become a greater, more uh, embedded part of popular culture. They don't just want to be that narrow. So, uh, yeah, as a brand, therefore, you ought to look at how users in whichever target audience it is are using that platform and talking to each other on it and interacting, as I say, with sometimes quite polished content that, Mm -hmm. say, Snapchat's uh, distributing through Discover, for example. Um, And you can learn a lot. Same with, I think, Facebook's Instant Articles uh, initiative is fascinating and, again, one that 
Brands, I always think, should look at mm. what publishers are doing themselves to adapt to digital formats mm. and new platforms and learn from that. Because publishers will live or die according to whether they now can effectively so, communicate on these platforms yeah. and monetize that. You look at the challenges that you know, the Guardian and New York Times are having. It's quite amazing. You mentioned at the beginning, um, so in the three approaches to making great content, uh, the listening and, and, uh, and the data. Do you guys provide a suite of services or do you have to end up essentially always taking the services that they use to create data and doing the listening? Well, ideally, you, you, we would, as an agency, run that analysis ourselves. So a lot of this is, is free public data. Obviously, you need some tools which you can subscribe to. So, yeah, and social listening tools, there are, there are many of them. So you need a way of scraping and taking API feeds for data, but then you need to assimilate it, sift it, of course, and then intelligently separate out the incidental from the important, as ever, with a good right. strategy. So it's just good strategy at the end of the day, as it always has been, which is... But now we've just got so many more rich data sets and types and live data. We can track things more easily and more in real time. And that's being used, as we know, by creators to adapt their, their own messaging. So brands should likewise do the same. So rather than just pr- produce a, a content initiative and it's set in stone, these things are now much more fluid and dynamically produced and iterated. To the extent that we have all this data, I mean, the observation I have is that a lot of brands don't have the time or maybe even the attitude to go after and use it. So it makes me think of this idea of measurability. To the extent that we have all this data available, how does one measure our, our content strategy? Well, again... This goes back to what, what's in your strategy. So we say, first off, be really clear about what is the role for content for your business and for your brand. What, what, what roles would content, could it perform? And at which part of the user journey or consumer funnel or decision maker journey? Um, be very clear about that at the beginning. So is this about simply turning on awareness? It could, it could be about awareness, but is it more likely to be about uh, moving to conversion uh, for preference, increased preference or shopping listing or even performance marketing? Is it about sales? Is it about building registrations and email lists or database? So be clear about that and the link between all of those. Um, Ultimately, I think content marketing at its best can build loyalty and retain customers so you don't have to keep on marketing and spending money on attracting new ones at its very best i think great content marketing pays back in the long term through lifetime value customer mm-hmm. lifetime value and i think there's that's why a lot of financial services companies telecoms businesses t- networks are investing in content marketing because they want to minimize churn they don't want to lose customers and they see its power in whether that's rights acquisition content or their own original content in doing exactly that so when it comes to metrics, it very much depends on where you are on that user journey. So you just mm-hmm. adapt your metric to which stage. Is it about awareness? Is it about engagement metrics? Is it, is it about loyalty metrics? Um, is it about return rates, bounce rates, and so on, subscription rates to your own channels and so on? So the, the metric, I think 80% of ROI is about identifying the right metric for your your up objective up front. All right, you, you mentioned uh, loyalty, and it makes me think of, of the long tail. To the extent that one of the big differences of content, especially in the digital world, is that you put it up and then it stays around. Mm. 
how are you guys evaluating that side of it? Because generally speaking, the sort of the attention span of a gnat, which is the shareholder and the you know got got to get me quick, uh, get me sales. How, where where does long tail sit in your approach? Maybe anecdotally, what you can see about the benefits. Well, I think this is one of the things we say to brands when we suggest, say, an investment into a partnership with an influencer. You, that influencer uh, is so it, their audiences can grow and grow and grow. So you'll get new members of an influencer community or fans who will look at effectively what's called the, you know, you could term the back catalogue on YouTube of various mm-hmm. um, broadcasts, individual shows or episodes. And we found that directly. So we had a, a partnership for O2 in the UK with a very big young influencer called Casper Lee to launch 4G. Uh, this is a couple of years ago now. But in contrast to when, say, the TV commercial launching that service in the UK launched, obviously, we paid for media And once that money was spent, the campaign was over. When we bought this influencer partnership, what we saw is the view rate with that chap, Casper Lee, an eight-minute video announcing the launch of 4G in his own distinctive style, long form, Um, and again, put into the hands of the creator and worked with his management company. So it was very native and natural. It was almost amateur, actually. It was was very, very native to me. Which makes it more authentic and and believable. And and that's what worked. We saw the numbers, the view rate, keep on rising. So that initial investment, and obviously confidentiality means I can't reveal it, meant that the ROI on that that piece of content... Mm -hmm has got better and better and better. Mm -hmm. And now we're, I don't know, three years on, the views are still going up. Mm -hmm. People are still looking at that individual clip, Mm -hmm. passing it on, sharing it to each other. This is just on the view rate, not the share rate. So uh, the ROI, we always say, for a great piece of influencer content actually can pay back over the long term. You need to think about that. But you're right, there's a watch out in there too about relevance, that once it's out there, it's out there. Mm -hmm. So be slightly careful around some of the, you know, if you've got a time-limited offer and things like that, obviously... Um, have, a, have one eye on it. Have one eye on it, definitely. And when you look at the uh, ROI and the metrics, are you, do you guys have a, a, sort of like a previously s- a standard with regard to notions of a like is worth X, a share is worth Z, and a comment is worth uh, Y? <laughs> um, I think that would be very hard to generalize on. Uh, like, as you, as you know, having worked in a large organization yourself with many brands in different countries and over time, brands uh, are so different in terms of their, their I suppose, their, the response rate that they earn back from consumers that it's very hard to generalize. There'll be some norms, of course, there will be. But if, how could you possibly compare a, a long-term financial services you know, product or purchase to... Uh, a confectionery purchase. It's very, very hard. Right, sure. Within category, of course, it's much easier. Yeah, and you, you, you can definitely, I think, approach that and you ought to begin to approach that. Um, the difficulty, as ever in advertising and, and marketing, of course, is people not being prepared to share their results uh, for good reasons, understandably. It's their competitive edge as they see it. But I think it's such a shame that more brands aren't encouraged to collaborate more on sharing these norms and to build a better wealth of knowledge that we can all benefit from. That's one of the, the downsides of, of a very competitive uh, environment in which brands operate. But, 
yeah, you, you sh- we personally don't have a val- uh, the value of a like or any of the many different emotional responses now that you can have on Facebook. Um, right. Against, uh, we don't have that as an as an individual amount, but we would obviously track for a brand where it sits uh, pre and post its own activity and over time, and then help that brand compare how it's performed in one country versus others, and suggest to the central marketeer or global team, for example, to look at those norms and try and get some insight out of that reading. If we just look at the the Facebook reactions, which uh, eMarketer did a little survey that said that something around 3% of all the interactions on Facebook are are in the reactions mode as opposed to a like, so basically everyone's sticking to like. But would you, just anecdotally, do you believe that the, the people who are going in and doing a wow or a sad uh, that's a more valuable interaction, or you just think that's just a bunch of BS? Uh, I think all it tells you is somebody has thought a bit more about it. That's Which, it but, but, that, but that is maybe a little bit sign of high, a higher engagement. Don't disagree. I'm, I'm not saying it isn't. Uh, I think that the personality type that's thought more about their reaction obviously, yeah, is truly engaged with that content. You definitely, rather than it be a glib, quick... Definitely, that, that's for sure. So um, the other thing you mentioned, so of the, th- the three different ways to do content strategy, the second one, I wanted to pull out one other f- thought, which is when creating great content, to what extent is it important that the brand has a higher purpose or meaningfulness in the creation of content? In other words, if you take a brand that's just a shareholder moneymaker, <laughs> which makes it awfully complicated, versus a brand that seems to have a little bit more mission, Patagonia, whatever. How, how, how does that relate to you? And then what, to what extent can you go back and push back on a customer, a client for you, to make them more purposeful? I, I think that you've hit on a very important potential role for content marketing, which is to tell those richer, deeper stories about what the brand's higher purpose is. For sure. In a way that you just don't have the time to do when it comes to advertising junctions. So we do see many brands uh, now realize that in a world of interesting, truly valuable interaction with the consumer, they ought to have something valuable to say. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to that word value. So what is value to a consumer? Well, it's more than the consumption of your product or service, for sure. So if you can attach yourself, you might through, again, rights acquisition or putting your money where your mouth is, investing in a charitable concern, CSR initiative, and so on, that if you do that, then you have permission to talk about your investment in that area and people will listen to you without doubt, without doubt. And I think, therefore, higher purpose is something that content marketing is now able to deliver on. But, of course, some categories and some consumer interactions are very, very light and we shouldn't mislead ourselves into thinking it's universally applicable. Again, I go back to if I want to buy a a fragrance brand or or even a beer brand, to be honest with you. There is, okay, there's a big trend towards craft beers and so on, talking about authenticity and the feeling of where this beer is made, but there's still a very, very large Heineken, Budweiser marketplace out there, which is very light. I want a quick drink. I want alcohol now. I want to have a good time with my friends. So the concept of higher purpose there doesn't quite exist, whereas entertainment associations, sports, music, and so on, very, very, very important. And then you mentioned a number of times influencer marketing. And it's been my observation, having worked with a number of influencers and sometimes being asked as one myself, 
that if the brand has a greater sense of purpose, it, it makes for a, a much better story for influencers. Definitely. Is that your experience? A hundred percent, without doubt. Many influencers want that higher purpose story to engage with. And if they don't see it, they'll... Well, there's different types of influencers, as you know. Some just want the money. Some want to make money finally out of this YouTube channel, this huge audience they've, they've built over years. And I'm afraid they do want to cash in. And they'll do unfortunate, I think, relatively crass placements and briefs that they'll take and won't push back. Their audience rejects it, doesn't like it. They see that in the comments. But they'll carry on doing it because they need money. Whereas I think some influencers uh, do really love engaging with a charity initiative particularly or something that adds value to their own channel that provides funding or a location or uh, a cast member that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to afford and I think that's where brands can again explicitly say we've done this we've helped here well the, the influencer themselves can say that about the brand right. they can if the influencer thanks the brand because x y or z has now been possible mm-hmm then the audience will thank the brand too, hopefully. When you're with your customers, your clients, do you recommend, or what's your position, should I say rather differently, on paying for influencers? It very much depends. I think you have to be honest about and transparent about payment to influencers. Um, If you're not, we know what can happen on social media, on any platform, is that it'll be pretty quickly found out and uh, discussed and with different levels of opprobrium or otherwise. So I'd say in the main you should be transparent about the association between a brand and its influencer, however that is communicated, whether that's in the text or uh, it depends on the platform, of course, how you reveal that, how you... How you but in, in, invariably, I think you should have an emphasis as a brand on making sure you are transparent. Mm-hmm. All right, so one of the things you, you, you talk about in the press that I've read about you, Mark, is you talk about that you guys in uh, Newcast are both content creation but also responsible for distribution. How do you go about crafting the right distribution to make it powerful? Um, The reason I am talking about this quite a bit is because I've been on a number of juries, including the the original Cannes branded content jury, branded content and entertainment jury in 2013, where we saw so many entries of amazingly crafted, well-funded, well-produced content that got terribly low view numbers, never mind engagement rates. Best kept secrets. Yeah. I mean, brilliant pieces of work that were, you know, trophy-esque. They, they deserve trophies for their creativity and, the, and the, the craft. But basically, they'd not been invested in, in terms of distribution. So first off, we would always try and advise a client about putting aside a discrete budget for distribution. Not because we're in the media agency business, Mm -hmm. but because it's a crying shame to not deliver the return on the original production investment without having a distribution investment Mm -hmm. that's been planned ahead of time. So, and in terms of where you distribute, obviously it depends on the platform you're publishing on. Um, But these days with lots of cross-platform and fertilization and sharing, it's pretty clear that you you can produce on one platform and distribute on many others but again you just got to be clear about where your target audience are so that goes back to basic media planning hygiene of knowing where the target audience are consuming the content sharing it most um and yeah where you're more likely to get a return path that you can monitor effectively that links to other variables like 
brand health metrics or sales. Mm-hmm. So you, you've got to be careful that you do get that data and that you feed it back in into the campaign. There's another thing that strikes me is when you, let's say you post, you do a, a lovely little ad or, sorry, a little video with an influencer or not, maybe it's eight minutes long, and then there's the count, the, the number of views. And so if you go on it and you've seen one million views, well, there's a, a greater likelihood, I'm sure, that there's some cutoff numbers where people say, oh, well, this is a million, I want to see it as well. I've missed out on it. But if you, it's got a great eight-minute thing with 1,022 views, you come on it, it's a big brand, you're like, well, pff, this doesn't smell good. So do you have those kind of conversations and tipping points that... Yeah, absolutely. So if you're in the middle of a, a, a piece of activity or campaign and you start spotting that certain individual assets aren't performing, then sure, whilst you would have helped fire them up with paid media, if they're still not working, then you have to drop them. You do, and you focus on the ones that are performing. You just have to react to the data and then pile in on the ones that are really performing. And you see this very, very quickly. I mean, unruly, as you might have seen and heard their research around the amount of interaction that happens within the first day, three days on YouTube videos is, is very clear. So you, you read that data, those tea leaves, and, and you respond definitely. But, yeah, that goes back to, or you touch on an issue of, uh, of uh, variety of form, I suppose, of asset, a number of assets or volume of assets. Again, that's what we have to do. We have to produce a high volume of assets to test out and see which do work. Uh, you can't always do that, but you should try and should be able to afford far more individual pieces of content than you would advertising because the production process, the approval process, is such that you can produce fast, affordable content at scale and test them. So, again, that's a very different dynamic uh, and paradigm from traditional TV commercial production, of course. And that also speaks to your partnership with the Relax News, which is basically helping to provide a lot more easy-to-digest to content. That's right. Uh, Relax News is our brand journalism business, uh, based out of Paris, but globally applicable, um, who produce individual pieces of uh, leisure news, is the phrase, for, uh, for brands in association with a very large news agency, Agence France Presse, AFP, who is our partner. But yeah, we produce um, something called an AFP Relax News Wire. So each day we produce 70 to 100 a bit sent to 100 individual pieces of content across all sorts of leisure categories, whether it's technology, motoring, beauty, and so on. And then we are able to feed that uh, stream through to a brand and a brand's content manager. It might not be us. It might be the brand's own content manager to decide which of those they want to post or select from or rewrite or reblog or talk about or expand out into a bigger piece of content. So, yeah. Um, the idea of a brand newsroom is obviously something that's a, a reality these days. But we'd say you, as ever, as I said at the beginning, have to think very carefully about what your editorial strategy is before you dive deep into a newsroom-type model. Is it right for your brand? How frequently would news from you as a brand mm-hmm. or leisure news generally be seen as acceptably uh, produced and distributed by, by an audience to be credible? Just going to last question, Mark, about newsjacking, <laughs> with brand newsjacking, you know, that wonderful thing by David Meerman Scott. What is your opinion of that? Is that something you guys do and recommend? Uh, it, again, it depends on the brand. If the brand is seen as 
for, for instance, an irreverent brand that feels it has permission to intervene in topical events which are comedic or turn a comedic twist to topical events itself, then I think that's okay. You've got to be very careful, though, of course. There's a legal side here. There's a bravery side. Mm -hmm. Very few brands can be that brave and have that kind of irreverence uh, on an ongoing basis. In the UK, a brand like Paddy Power exploits that very, very well and almost doesn't care because that's who it is. But I think some more corporate brands have to be very, very careful there. But when it comes to not so much newsjacking, but as I say, if you feel like you uh, would like to add value to your own, the subscribers to your own owned media channels by giving them regular updates in topics of interest that they have and they've displayed or self-declared, then that's only got to be a valuable thing if you offer that as a free service to, to your audience, your subscribers. You've got to do it very delicately and in a very easy way, snackable way. But, yeah, I think they value and appreciate that kind of service. Well, it comes back to knowing who you are and who you're going after. Listen, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Tell us how someone can track you down or what's the best way to connect with you. I suppose the easiest way is to just link in with me. Very easy to find on LinkedIn, Mark Warren, Newcast. And uh, yeah, or contact me directly on email at markwar at zenithoptimedia.com. Bit of a mouthful there. Um, but uh, thanks for your time. It's a, it's thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your that you mention in your lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form As long as you would feel warm Wrapped in canvas, hold me tightly Slowly we would paint a lover's portrait With all your favorite shades
Much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.